You're listening to the History Today podcast. In this episode, Tom Holland discusses his new translation of Herodotus. But before that, just a quick reminder that the October issue of History Today is out now, featuring Charles Emerson on Russia on the eve of the First World War, Alan Withy on early modern medicine in Britain, Richard Barber on the military genius of Edward III, Richard Sanders on the origins of football, Ben Wilson on three centuries of Anglo-Spanish tensions in Gibraltar, and Hannah Gregg on the stylish radicals of Georgian London. Now, here's our interview with Tom Holland, who spoke to History Today editor Paul Lay. We're delighted to have as our guest today the ceaselessly productive Tom Holland, whose investigation into the origins of Islam in the shadow of the sword has been such a critical and commercial success. Tom's new book is a translation of the histories by the great Greek historian Herodotus, whom Cicero called the father of history, first writer of non-fiction. It's a book about which Paul Cartledge writes in the October edition of History Today. And Tom's here to talk to us about it. Welcome, Tom. Um, You've translated classical authors for radio before. Homer, well, I didn't translate Virgil, them. I adapted Thucydides. them. Oh, I adapted, adapted them, them, so it wasn't quite hard. But you have had work. some experience. Yeah, I have. Um, but Herodotus holds a very special place in your heart. Anyway, it's because you've lived with him for such a long time. He was my first, the first great classic that I ever read, and that's sort of including Dickens or Jane Austen. When I was, um, I guess, about 10, I became obsessed by Greek warfare. Um, and of course, the battles of Marathon and Thermopylae um, hold a precious place in anyone who's interested in Greek warfare. Um, and I realised that if I was going to, to to find out more about it, I would have to read Herodotus. So I went to the library um, and there was a two volume edition there and I got them both out. Um, and I opened it and it begins with Herodotus you know, setting out what he's going to do. And he's going to talk about the war between the Greeks and the Persians. And he's going to explain how it came about. And I thought, brilliant. Um, started reading it and... I was going off all over the place. Herodotus kicks off by, he he starts off a story about a man who wants his bodyguard to watch his wife naked. Um, And then we're into a story about a man playing a lyre and jumping off a boat and being picked up by a dolphin. And then before you know it, you're in an enormous chapter about the Egyptians. Then Herodotus is off talking about the Indians and then the Scythians. And it's like an enormous shaggy dog story. And when I was 12, I was quite impatient for him to cut to the chase. I wanted him to get to Marathon and Thermopylae, which he does eventually. And the, the, you know, his accounts of them are absolutely gripping and stirring and extraordinary. But I guess the mark of, of a classic is that it grows old with you. So that as you reread it, you find ever more stuff. Um, and now, now that I'm 45, it's, I wish that there was more digression. I wish there was more. He, at one point, he, Herodotus says that he's going to tell us about the Assyrians, and he never tells us about the Assyrians. And I deeply regret that. I always wish it was longer. But the thing about Herodotus is that not only is he a great historian, and his, his, his narrative of the Persian invasions is one of the great narratives, not just in history, but you know, any form of literature, but... He is also so unfailingly interested in everything and so unfailingly entertaining. And I, he is someone who I must have read hundreds of times and I've spent all this time translating him. And at the end of that process, I love him even more than I did when I began. And, and I think that that's fact, the mark. You make the grand claim, perhaps justifiable, that he's the most entertaining historian. I think he is. Yeah. I really, you know, he wrote two and a half thousand years ago. That's a very long time ago. 
And there are still passages in it that can make you smile. There are passages in it that can make you wince. And there is almost no page on which there isn't something interesting. Now, historia in Greek means inquiry, research, investigation. But yes, because it doesn't have the meaning of history. It, it only in gets that sense. sense about 100 years on from Herodotus and largely due to him. Mm. But it does suggest the, the curiosity of the natural historian that he goes beyond history as a polymath. He's a writer of non-fiction. Yes. He's well, even a writer he, of fiction he, in some he's, way. He's, um, he, he's not himself an Ionian. Um, he, he's from the city of Halicarnassus, which is not part of Ionia, but on, on the, the, what's now the, the Aegean seaboard of Turkey. Um, and so he's a part of that milieu, which is, is seeing the birth of philosophy and natural science. Um, and what the philosophers are doing, really, and it's, I suppose, really the only parallel would be with the Enlightenment of the 18th century, is to get a sense of the excitement of looking at things and trying to explain them in natural causes rather than divine causes. And so essentially what Herodotus is doing is applying that methodology to the field of human affairs. And he's um, trying to explain events not in terms of, of the, the will of the gods, although the gods are a presence in the, in the histories, but essentially he's trying to, to do it in terms of cause and effect. And he's also, I suppose, scientific in the modern sense of the word in that he is concerned to... Um, convey his evidence he's concerned to show how it is that he has come by his information and of course we take that for granted now that that, that is so fundamental to the historical method that we don't even think of it really as as being something that at one point was revolutionary but it was revolutionary when Herodotus started developing it and so that in that sense um, Cicero is absolutely right in saying that that Herodotus is the father of history and the core of the histories, once we get past shaggy dog theory, is the Greco-Prussian War, which is something you've already covered in Persian Fire, um, which begins around about 480 BC. Uh, so he'd be about 40 then or something, would he? Yes, yeah, so, the, so the, the great invasion by Xerxes, which is, is, is the major attempt by the Persians to, to conquer Greece, is, is 480 and ends 479. Um, and Herodotus is writing, yes, a sort of few decades after that. But there are still people around who fought in it. And there's one incredibly um, extraordinary moment in the histories where Herodotus is writing about the Battle of Plataea in 479, which is a great land battle which, which finishes the Persian invasion of Greece proper. Um, and the Persians were, were centred in the city of Thebes, the Greek city. And the Persian general holds a banquet in which the, um, the Greeks and the Persians who are allied, team up. And Herodotus interviews someone who had sat next to a Persian, lay next to a Persian, and this Persian had said that he was anxious and afraid and thought that the Persians were going to lose the, the, the battle that was about to be fought. And that's the kind of detail that you get where, you know, in, in a book about the First or the Second World War, someone interviewing a veteran and, and getting that kind of personal detail. But this is two and a half thousand years ago. You're hearing the voice of someone from two and a half thousand years ago for a, a battle, and it sends a shiver down the spine. And these are many of the great battles of the ancient world that live with us to this day. Not just Largely Marathon, because of Herodotus, Salamis, yes. And, of course, Thermopylae as well. And, and Thermopylae, yes. And it's interesting because there is a sense in which Herodotus is poised between history as we would understand it and, and the world of epic. Mm -hmm. And Thermopylae is the perfect example of that, that the details of the battle, of course, he... he, he conveys and are very interesting but he also gives to it a homeric angle so that when leonidas the spartan king 
is killed. He descri- Herodotus describes the Spartans and the Persians fighting over the body, tugging it this way and that, exactly as Homer describes the fight over the body of Patroclus. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, its resonance, two and a half thousand years on it, is very real. We see that phrases from the history that entered the language, we have such things as Richard's Croesus, Paul, Poppy Syndrome, and from that. So it still has this resonance. Um, But tell us something about uh, the process of translation. Um, Paul Cartledge talks of the challenge for one, of dealing with um, the Ionic dialect rather than the, the Attic. standard Attic. Um, and tell us something about the time span of the translation, how it was done, the process. Well, <laughs> when I got the commission, I knew that I would really have to brush up my Greek considerably. So I spent about three years of pretty intense study. And then, of course, the process of actually, actually translating always helps as well. But the, the discipline that I applied to it was that the the histories are divided into books and the books in turn are divided into paragraphs, not by Herodotus himself, but but by Alexandrians later on. Um, and so I set myself the challenge of doing at least one paragraph a day. Um, and I would do that come rain or shine, whether I was on holiday, whether it was Christmas, whether it was my birthday, whatever. Um, and it sort of became quite fun because occasionally there are one-line paragraphs and I'd have the choice on those days of, well, I could effectively have a day off or I could get two or three more in and bank some up ready for the really long four page paragraphs. <laughs> so it became it became kind of, um, I suppose, a sort of intellectual uh, keep fit regime, you know, the daily exercise. It was a daily mental exercise. It was like doing the crossword, I suppose, or something like that. And there's a sense in which. The, the process of translation is a bit like that, that you have the words in your head, the Greek words, and then you, you translate them into English and you have to rearrange them, repattern them so that they make sense in English while not losing um, the, the adherence to the Greek. And um, you have to do it with a stylistic consistency as well. Which you do, right. except that one of the things that's interesting about Herodotus is that there's quite a variety of style right. within the Greek. So there are places where his, his language is overtly Homeric um, I, I suppose, you know, the nearest equivalent to us would be Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the tone becomes more elevated. And then there are other places where it's more demotic. Well, I wonder if you'd read a passage for us. It's from the third book. It's one referred to by Paul Cartledge in his appreciation of your translation of the, the histories, which is in the October edition of History Today. And it demonstrates, I think, the, the remarkable openness of mind. Um, we might even flatter ourselves by calling it modern. Yes. Okay. So the background to this is he's writing about Cambyses, the, the Persian king who has conquered Egypt um, and who then, according to Herodotus, goes mad. And um, the evidence of, of, of his insanity to Herodotus is that he sneers at Egyptian customs and religion. Everywhere you look, it seems to me, the evidence accumulates that Cambyses was utterly deranged but why otherwise would he have mocked what to others were hallowed customs? Just suppose that someone proposed to the entirety of mankind that a selection of the very best practices be made from the sum of human custom. Each group of people, after carefully sifting through the customs of other peoples, would surely choose its own. Everyone believes his own customs to be far and away the best. And from this, it follows that only a madman would think to jeer at such matters. Indeed, there is a huge amount of corroborating evidence to support the conclusion that this attitude to one's own native customs is universal. Take, for example, this story from the reign of Darius. 
He called together some Greeks who were present and asked them how much money they would wish to be paid to devour the corpses of their fathers, to which the Greeks replied that no amount of money would suffice for that. Next, Darius summoned some Indians, called Kalantians, who do eat their parents, and asked them in the presence of the Greeks, who were able to follow what was being said by means of an interpreter, how much money it would take to buy their consent to the cremation of their dead fathers, at which the Kalantians cried out in horror and told him that his words were a desecration of silence. Such, then, is how custom operates, and how right Pindar is, it seems to me, when he declares in his poetry that custom is the king of all. Thank you, Tom. And Tom Holland's new translation of the histories by Herodotus is published by Alan Lane and goes on sale on September the 26th. It is oh, it's, it's published by Penguin Classic. They got that wrong on the film. Oh, it's Penguin Classic. Although we know it's not Alan Lane, it's Penguin yeah, Classic, yeah. so an exclusive for us. It is very highly recommended. And Paul Cartledge's article on Tom's translation can be found in the latest issue, the October edition of History Today. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.